was like trying to think of a good one for today. Sneaking on through Selena, maybe. Sneaking on through. I love. I don't know. I love. Uh, you know, alliteration. That is always uh, my primary objective in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that one, I don't know what I'm sneaking on through to. Maybe just like sneaking through that seasonal depression slump. Um, mm. But maybe on the upward turn of that, you know. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, and I'm Worker B Corey. Worker B Corey. Corey just got employed. Yes, in uh, like a daytime job. They're bonafide. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let me get Corey. That consistent income is something else. It is definitely. Um, I understand. And, uh, today we are joined by Star and Atlas. Welcome to the Hi. Show. Thank Hello. you. Um, so, where are we? What are we? We're a podcast. <laughs> oh, in the know. Are it's we? a podcast about sex work by sex workers for sex workers. Uh, and that's really important. And um, you know what? Another thing that I've been wanting to start doing is uh, introducing people's pronouns. Yes. My pronouns are they, them. I am Fay Fair. Y'all are? He, they. She, her. Sweet! Perfect. Amazing. Every episode, we begin with a segment we call Historical Hoes. And this week's Historical Ho is Mary Jane Kelly. Trigger warning for murder and violence against sex workers. I got my information from whitechapeljack.com and casebook.org. The information will be included in the episode description. Mary Jane Kelly was born around 1863 in Limerick, Ireland. Most of what is known of her backstory came from her partner, Joseph Barnett. Though Irish-born, Mary Kelly was spent most of her early years living in Wales. Her father was John Kelly, an ironworker. Kelly told Barnett that she had six or seven siblings. Kelly was on her own from a young age. In 1879, at 16 years old, she married a collier named Davies. After only three years of marriage, he was tragically killed in a coal mine explosion. Kelly did not return to her parents, but rather headed to Cardiff to live with a cousin. It was there that she became a full-service sex worker. Kelly only spent a little time in Cardiff and spent much of that time ill and in an infirmary. She moved to London in 1884 and may have stayed in a charitable house, the Providence Row Night Refuge, and worked as a charwoman. Not long afterward, she left um, the Providence Row Night Refuge and moved into a house in the West End. In the West End, Kelly worked and lived in a high-class brothel run by a Frenchwoman. It was said that during this time, Kelly had added some exoticism by her own name, or to her own name, by going by Mary Jeanette. Jeanette. Kelly bragged to Barnett that she had often ridden in a carriage, and that at one point she had even been taken to Paris. She had not liked Paris, however, and had returned to London after just two weeks. She then moved to a house in the east end of St. George's Street. She was quickly ejected from that house for drinking too much and possibly using other intoxicants besides alcohol. At this point, Kelly moved in with Mrs. Carthy. Carthy may have been another madam, though, because Barnett referred to the Carthy residence as, quote, a bad house. 
never one to stay put for long. Kelly moved on from there to frequent Cooley's lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitalfields, around the end of 1886. Joseph Barnett entered Kelly's life, April 8, 1887. They decided, after meeting only twice, to move in together. Barnett and Kelly lived on first on George Street, and then Dorset Street, where they were evicted for not paying rent on time and for drunkenness. In fact, the Thames Magistrate Court fined Kelly for being drunk and disorderly on September 19th, 1888. The couple would move two more times before August of 1888, and during that time, Kelly had been working odd jobs. Then Barnett lost his job, with weeks of rent fees piling up as well as debts to the state for public drunkenness. It was up to Mary Kelly to bring in the money. Much to Barnett's chagrin, Kelly resumed full-service sex work. By the fall of 1888, the relationship between Mary Kelly and Joseph Barnett became strained by their financial situation, as well as Joseph's disapproval of Kelly's work. The reign of Jack the Ripper overshadowed Whitechapel with fear, and Mary had begun to allow other full-service sex workers who had nowhere to go in the evenings to stay with the couple in their tiny room in Miller's Court. Quote, she let them because she was a good-hearted and did not like to refuse them shelter on cold, bitter nights, Barnett told the inquest. We lived comfortably until Mary allowed a full-service sex worker named Julia to sleep in the same room. I objected, and as Mrs. Harvey afterwards came and stayed there, I left and took lodgings elsewhere. A charwoman who lived at Number 1 Miller's Court, Julia Venturni, said that Barnett was known to have treated Mary well and gave her money whenever he could, a kindness which did not stop after he moved out. He disapproved of her prostitution and wanted her to change professions, yet he continued to visit her every day up until the evening of November 8th. In the meantime, Kelly continued to allow other women, including Mrs. Harvey and Julia, to stay over at her home. Mrs. Harvey slept over there until she took up lodgings on Dorset Street on November 7th. On November 8th, Barnett visited Kelly at 7 and then left, on good terms, um, at 7.45 p.m. At this point, witness testimonies diverge, but the next time Barnett saw Kelly... He could identify her only by her eyes and her hair. She was 25 at the time of her death and said to be the prettiest of Jack the Ripper's victims. Mary Jane Kelly was laid to rest in the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leighton Stone, then was moved from the mortuary at Shoreditch to the graveyard. She was buried according to the traditions of the Catholic Church. Sadly, none of Mary's family could be found to come to her funeral. And that is the tragic story of the life of Mary Jane Kelly, this week's historical hoe. I'm so excited to talk to you guys, uh, and there's just like so much. Star, um, I've gotten to know you first, and I, we had like a really lovely phone call yesterday, and <laughs> yeah. um, there's just so many levels of this, but I wanna make sure that we like really make the most of both of you, and also, Gotta shout out your pooch who is getting very comfortable behind you. Oh, very comfortable. <laughs> so cute. Yeah, that just living the dream back here. <laughs> <laughs> but like one dark eye, it has like um like like the target dog. 
but yes, black. like Target dog yeah. coloring. Um, very cute. Very very cute. Um, She's sweet. She was me as a dog, like awkward's and hides in closet. So, yeah. <laughs> 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 so star so you started in camming yeah so i have like kind of a interesting sordid history with sex work and i think something that maybe we don't talk about as much is that sometimes people do sex work as a means to an end which for me it definitely was um i went to a small liberal arts college and my parents kind of like just were like okay, well now um, you're an adult. And so figure it out. And I was like, sounds cool. Um, but figuring it out is not that easy. And so, did you have to take loans? so I did kind of, um, my parents wanted me to pay for college my own. However, I'm now 29 and not 17. And so what I didn't know was that because they claimed me on their taxes, that all of my financial aid was based off their income. And not off my income. I hate that so much. That's like how my parents were too. They, they, I mean, it was like, I couldn't get really any financial aid because of their money, but they were also like cutting me off. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And I also went to liberal arts college and liberal arts colleges are expensive. Yeah. Yes, Um, they are. Which one did you go to? If you want to say. Um, I went to, (laughs) I, I think in 2009, it was um playboys party school of the year shout out to state university (laughs) in plymouth new hampshire i'm not sure like what the credentials for that are i can say confidently that it is in fact a party school which is kind of what got me into all of this really to be honest because i like needed money and i needed to pay for my books and i needed to i didn't have a car and when you live like in a rural area which is my school was in a rural area um, you just gotta like do sketchy shit. And so it was like, mostly back then it wasn't like an ethical decision to like, I'm going to do sex work in a super empowered way. It was like, if I fuck this dude, can I say that? Am I allowed to swear? On this yeah, fuck? of course. Yes. How can we talk about work without you saying the word fuck? <laughs> <laughs> if I fuck this dude, he'll buy my, but whatever fucking my, I, I went, I'm an acting major. So like, I wasn't like doing calculus. I want to say my calculus textbook, but it was more like my, I don't know, my scripts. If I fuck this dude, he will buy me some monologue books. And so I'm just going to do that. And then I had a friend who was doing camming and she was like, hey, we should do this threesome on cam. And I was like, I don't care. Just if you'll pay me, I will do this. Um, What site did you use? Oh God, I don't even remember. I mean, this is the thing is like, I was kind of like a, I ended up doing cam work with her. And so like she, it was like her platform and I, she would just like at the end of the night, give me a hundred bucks or whatever, or pay for my shit or give me drugs. And that was like cool with me or buy me beer. And I did that for like three years. And then I met Atlas (laughs) and things got better and easier. And um, it didn't feel so, I don't know. It was like, Back then, I really didn't think about it as sex work. It wasn't like a decision I was making to empower myself. Like I said, it was just like a way for me to survive. And I even got this thing into my head where I had a professor in college, and we talk about this a lot, um, who... Like, I'm really tiny. I'm 4'8". I'm not like the standard fare for 
um, you know, leading role on a stage play or even in film. And so like, he called me in his office and he's like, you know, I've really been thinking about what path you should go on for your theater, your acting career. And I was there on a scholarship. Like most of my tuition was paid for, but people forget to tell you about all the other shit associated with college, like being a human being and being (laughs) (laughs) right. All of it. They forget to tell you about all that shit. And he was like, you know, you really should just think about putting the acting thing on a back burner. And I was like, why? He's like, well, you just don't like, you don't look good enough. So just focus on voice acting. And I was like, wow. And this is the scene that I've replayed in my head for a decade of like that. I was never good enough to be up on stage or be behind, like in front of the camera, like being myself and using my skill and my trade. And so now I literally make people's fantasies happen on the internet. So I kind of feel like, fuck you, Paul Maraska. You <laughs> like, okay. He's probably subscribed to my OnlyFans. So yeah, that's always the irony of it. It's yeah. like people really do want these OnlyFans whenever they find out it exists. Right. <laughs> so I mean it it sounds like you came in with like a good amount of like acting skills, like just stage skills. <laughs> yeah. You watch it. Yeah. 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 And so it's you know, I'm older and it kind of comes full circle. Like I love this full circle analogy that like I'm older and I'm a mom and I have, you know, mom, mom life. I have mom life. And so like I, it kind of turned into another opportunity as a means for an end, but being coming at it from a really ethical perspective and being Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to do this because this is what I want. It was an, it's an opportunity for me to redefine and reclaim that really stressful and traumatic like place I was in 10 years ago and like owning it, taking ownership of it and be like, this is where I started and what, um, who I was and I'm still that person, but elevated. Um, and so we talk about like my persona, which I don't really, it, it's not a persona star is not a persona star is a part of who I am. She's the part that no one gets to see. She's the part that um, has lived on a shelf for a really long time because I have been taking care of two little kids and doing that whole thing. Um, and now she's coming back and I'm renewing her and, um, she makes me feel powerful and she makes me feel sexy and she makes me feel desired. And, um, she takes all my insecurities away. And so it's like an opportunity for me to refresh myself and I'm psyched about it. And it's been a really fun journey and it's been particularly fun because my partner is kind of doing it with me and we've made it like a after hours date night. So let's let's uh, <laughs> rewind a little bit. So, yeah. um, how did you and Atlas meet? Can I take Atlas point? tell the story, please? Um, are you going to tell them the very first story of our first date? Or <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh. I, I can start there. So, I guess I'll I'll give both. Um, our relationship began, um, like as a kind of a, a lunchtime romance. So. I was <laughs> I was working at the deli in the town where she was going in Plymouth, where she was going to school, and she was rolling burritos at like a, a joint across. That the is street. actually not a sex analogy. I really did roll burritos. Um, 
I would I would straight up like go and order takeout food just to to talk to her. I hated the shit. Like I didn't even <laughs> want it. <laughs> and like I knew she had a boyfriend and whatnot, but I also knew that she was kind of dealing with a lot of bullshit at the time as well so i was just straight talking shit every time i saw her i was just like you know if you want to you want a real man this clown. Yeah, yeah yeah like straight up straight up so I, it took like probably three months of ordering bad food and just kind of hoping <laughs> and i i finally worked up the nerve asked her to come over she saw a bunch of takeout in my fridge and the rest is history um that's how we met when she was in school as far as the first date story okay okay i'll tell the first date story because it's <laughs> um, like i think it like really <laughs> captures our, rela- our relationship <laughs> to its essence which was there was every spring at plymouth state there's this thing called spring fling and i i think most colleges have this it's like just a big concert and usually some awful low-level performer comes like the year before drake got big he came to plymouth state was this one with or yes and Wiz Khalifa my freshman year Wiz Khalifa came so like he was nobody yeah and it's it goes so like unappreciated too because right. it's the most fucking vanilla crowd and like every Chad you've ever met went to Plymouth State every so. single one mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe some brides too. So the night before Spring Fling, there's always a cooler show that we would everyone goes to. The night of the battle of the bands. Oh when god, shit goes down. This is like making me feel old as shit. We are old. <laughs> and RJD two was doing a set of, and he was like, and you were high as shit. Oh god, he texts me. Atlas texts me, and he's like, "Hey, there's this thing. You should come down." like we should hang out i'm like oh cool that sounds great and so then you ghosted me (laughs) atlas sees me across the room after like texting me looking for me (laughs) (laughs) and he's like okay he sees me in the corner and he's like you weren't texting me at all what the fuck is going on she's like right over there he's like come over here and i just like shook my head and like faded into the darkness <laughs> little did he know i had just taken a shit ton of acid grateful <laughs> dead family acid and it wasn't working and i was wicked pissed so i went in the bathroom and there was just this random fucking becky in there and she's like hey do you want some molly and i was like you know what yes took a bunch of molly and as soon as i'm like doing these lines of molly i st- I look in the mirror at myself and I realize that the acid was finally hitting me. Oh. And, I was, oh, oh. and then I was like, oh, I'm supposed to meet this guy. <laughs> and yeah. And I now, thought she wasn't into it. Like I, at that point, I, I, you know, hours later, I'm like, okay, she saw me. I got the look and it was just like, a, you know. Just, and now we're married and we have two children together. Yeah, you never would have thought. You never would have so thought. How like, old are your children now? Almost six and almost seven. Yeah. Oh my gosh, six and seven. Wow. Those yeah. <laughs> I know. There's been a lot of growing since that RGD two show. Yeah. I haven't taken any acid since then. Wow. It's, it's a you know, At that point, I had all like acid you need in your life, baby. <laughs> I graduated from Plymouth State um, long before Star, and right after I graduated was like you know, post-trauma from a bad fiancé. 
I moved out to Chicago briefly and I tried to do the city thing, tried to do the Midwest life, hated it. So I came back to the East Coast. Um, yeah, at that point, just cleaned up my act. And that's when we hit the ground running and, and things just completely changed. Um, should I talk about how I kind of got into the game yeah. a bit? Or? Yeah, definitely. So I just wanted to preface this by saying, like, neither of you started off, like, pre-quarantine, you guys were not doing sex work. No, like, no. You had civilian it, jobs before this. They're, I worked they're, for the federal government. I was, <laughs> I was a teaching fellow at an outdoor-based pre-K through 8 uh, school. And yeah, I mean, it's like, it's also kind of funny because people generally, you know, it's hard for people who end up in sex work or who do sex work to like get jobs around kids a lot of times, you know, mm -hmm. just right. because it, it's totally stuff like that, regardless of. Well, I think that we're battling with that stigma and the reverse being that like, as parents that are sex workers, we have children yeah. and like when I think the layperson's perspective of like what that looks like it I think it's I mean I don't think I know that it is in fact skewed to being not ethical like we're not <laughs> we're not out here like doing porn in the living room on a Saturday morning yeah, like <laughs> people have this misconception that like because we're sex workers we do sex work and it has but become a full-time job no for boundaries, us yeah Right. Like we're still parents and like, <laughs> I mean, we still do parent shit. And like, I think the best analogy is that like, I have thirsty dudes that want to sex that buy money at like noon on a Sunday. And I'm, he's like texting me about how hard he's going to come and I'm making Annie's mac and cheese. So like, <laughs> it's like this merge of like wholesome and reality. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm I'm setting thirst traps on Grinder while I'm playing Mario Kart Eight. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not balance. It is. It really is. The sex work multitasking is so real, though. It is so real. It's so fucking real. And I'm not to say that like I just jumped in because of necessity or anything like that in the midst of the pandemic. Um, when I was at school at Plymouth, I was probably 21, 22 years old. Um. I was working for a ticket scalping company. Uh, we would basically just mass purchase events and sporting tickets and then just resell them on this website. And the same individual who owned that company also employed me as one of his drivers for an escort service. So I would clock out from like the nine to five as you know, doing HTML coding kind of thing and get a company vehicle and I would just drive and pick up whatever girl. Sometimes I knew them, sometimes I didn't. There was ones that worked for him, but it was always sketchy. It always felt sketchy as hell. Um, there was times where they had me doubling as protection for the girls and I would have to go in. There was times where like, I was doing tech work and learning. Um, I had a back in film and media that was my degree so I started you know like I would like the set or I would you know be a b camera or this or that but it really wasn't like like, like a b camera for like porn stuff 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like occasional, like that. That if that was the gig, then yeah. But it wasn't like a pursuit by any means. Like the escorting service seemed to be kind of like all over the place as far as what people were providing, right? Big time, big time. I wish you could see the building that this place ran on. This was this was like like you know Craigslist casual encounters. That's when like that shit was at its peak. Like there really wasn't a, a, a platform for sex workers or a way to like normalize it, but all of these experiences like it was more often like college girls doing work than it was you know women of the night and growing up as a, well and you, you, you growing up as a straight up farm boy you don't you, you just have this gross misconception of what it truly is you, you totally totally do and then you find yourself in this opportunity of being like, oh, do you, do you want to drive my girls? And I'm like, oh, shit, you know, yes, of course <laughs> I do. But it ends up being like your homegirl and you learn all about it. It just, it, the, the shit is real. And, and you fast forward so many fucking years later, it, it's even more real with your own children and with a family and when the stakes have changed and there's a fucking pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The whole conversation too in the last year has changed. Like, my whole partnership with star has been very like centered around political work and activism work and, you know, male feminist work. And in the last year, like post George Floyd, especially. Which is crazy that it feels like it's almost been that long. Like it, it just ramped up and, and went to this, you know, fever pitch where, you know, I'm speaking from my chest, but I'm also seeing like there's these critical intersections with sex workers, activists, the, the protests, LGBTQ work, all of it that really truly needs to be addressed. And I see a lot of, of women in that fight and trans people in that fight, but what I don't see is a lot of men engaging in that fight. And that's really what spurred me to step up and be like, yo, fuck this. I'm not going to just speak from a protest voice. I'm also going to tag into this fucking sex work and bait these motherfuckers and educate them at the same time and be like, yo, the fetish works like the fetish shit stops right fucking here. Cause I'm sick of it. Like you didn't respect me in the streets, but you want to, you know, fetishize me in the sheets. I'm not here for it. I'm not fucking here for it. And just, and and just because um, podcasting is not a visual medium, you guys are a biracial couple. yes, Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Um, which leaves a different, I think, like, I think Selena and I talked about this a lot. And this is like a constant thing that hangs in my brain is that here where we live in New Hampshire, being a biracial couple is taboo as fuck. Mm-hmm. First off, because 90% of our population is white. And I'm not just talking about white, educated, round glasses, old white dudes. I'm talking about MAGA mouth breathing uh, the worst kind. And proud so, boys and pickups, baby. Proud boys and pickups. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, what we do is like, we we are fringe here where like, if yeah. we lived in Los Angeles, we would just like blend in. Yeah. Just for people for context. So Star, you're white yeah. and um, yeah. Atlas, you are, you're Korean, right? Yes, I am. Thank you. South Korean. Um, Korean yeah. And an adoptee as well. So I kind of have, you know, experience on both sides of the fence, um, having Caucasian parents. What are, uh, what are your parents? Are they, um, are they white or? 
yeah fully fully white like irish oh. irish as yeah irish fully, fully white. white yeah farmers, <laughs> straight up farmers from new hampshire but um at the same time they always helped me kind of lean into my ethnic identity and, and allowed me to explore myself that way so there was very much you know experiences you know as my ethnic self and also as a as a white person as well but um mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like we should touch upon kind of the, the, the distinct difference between what I've come to refer to as West Coast racism and East Coast racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> very, very different. <laughs> totally different. <laughs> well, just being in such a diverse, diversified place living on the West Coast, everyone is so represented and so visible that you just kind of assume in this toxic way, racism doesn't exist. Incorrect. And I think that it also is, is the case on the East Coast, but it's sort of the inverse. Like everyone is so underrepresented, especially in New England. It's this very like invisible thing. Um, I mean, our our governor, when George Floyd happened and all of this stuff just spiraled, um, you know, our the governor, Kristen Noonan of New Hampshire, he straight up said that he didn't think racism existed here in New Hampshire. Uh, I, I really wish they everyone could see Corey's face because it, that that's how we felt. And then people feel like they have permission to also think that. And you're like, you're white. (laughs) Of course, racism doesn't exist because reverse racism doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Like you're white. And so you can't speak for people of color and the black and brown people that are scared to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so that also, you know, brings into view, like, so you have biracial children and you're living in New Hampshire and, and you're in rural New Hampshire, right? Yeah. Very, very much so. Um, so. What has it been like, you know, raising kids who are mixed? I mean, I'm a, as a mixed kid, you know, <laughs> curious, uh, you know, in 2020. Yeah. So everyone, oh, God. we have, um, yeah, we have an interesting I think situation that I, we know is not unique. However, Mm -hmm. um, we together as an interracial couple have dealt with a lot of, um, scrutiny from people in our community. And we, in 2014, um, our oldest son was born and we dealt with a person that viciously stalked and threatened us and threatened to kill our mixed baby because he didn't like it um and so this is like kind of an overarching theme that has loomed over this parenthood that's supposed to be joyful and wonderful that this person stalked atlas and myself i would walk with the baby and the dogs when atlas was at work and this person would tail me and um it shook my privilege because like as a white woman it it birthed this idea that, holy shit, like my white privilege does not protect this baby that I have. This baby who obviously does not look white will never pass as white. Um, and then in 2015, we had another baby so, and, Sorry, <laughs> and it became even more intense. And so when it came to school, we had this really tough decision of, 
do we support our local public school by sending our children there? Um, because like, how do you improve your shitty public schools, but sending kids there and demanding improvements or do we protect their identity for the very short period of time that we can? And so we have worked our asses off to send them to private school, which where they're safe, where they're safe, where they're safe. And it's like, it's equal parts privilege and safety. Um, and that it just makes it really complicated. And to add another layer of that is that what our younger child is very fluid with their identity of their gender. Um, so, you know, add that layer of being an Asian child growing up in rural New Hampshire with also not identifying with your gender and being six years old. Um, (laughs) so it's complicated mess. There's a lot of, it's just kind of like the one of the core things is like that you just in public school like you just don't don't end up feeling protected mm-hmm. yeah that was my experience um and i didn't want that for for my children um i went from being like the only ethnic person that i knew growing up as a kid was my sister who was also an adoptee same you know kind of situation she's south korean we're not biologically related or anything um we had you know classes of 17 18 kids and she was the only ethnic person that i knew until i got sent to boarding school and i was in a class of you know 300 people and was just kind of a statistic at that point that was some court-ordered shit um my eyes were opened again it was kind of equal parts to protect me and also you know privilege as well but you know ultimately it doesn't change your experience with race i think it kind of if anything it distorted it um it it put me in this environment of you know i wasn't towny enough for the white kids but i also wasn't you know educated and ethnic enough for the boarding students and the international kids so it it really it really fucked up my identity because it was supposed to be, you know, firming up at that point and, and you're supposed to be figuring out who you want to be. And ultimately for me, it just kind of led to a series of identity crises. Um, but you figure your shit out. Right. And, and so I think like a big decision for us when we decided that delving back into sex work after a long hiatus of not and making like a smart, rational decision about it and you know i can only speak for myself atlas has his own perspective and identity as a sex worker um but we all know like there's just a different stigma between female sex workers and male sex workers mm-hmm. and you know my, our perspective is that like sex work is empowering for people as long as it's a decision that they're making for themselves um but from the outside looking in he looks empowered and i look like a slut so battling how we were going to approach this the biggest and hardest decision was that i would protect my identity um to protect our children and so i don't show my face on the internet which makes it really hard to sell porn but not as hard as you might think 
<laughs> because they don't want to see my face. So like it works, but I mean, we deal with, because they go to a private school that if we were outed as sex workers, the stakes are incredibly high. Um, like we're adult people, like I don't give a shit about us, but they could lose their scholarship. Um, which would put us in a situation of if they decide not to take them back because every year they have to be readmitted, that they will, we will have no choice but to send them to the local public school um, and put them in a situation where our stalker son would be in the same grade as our oldest child. And like with a clean, I could not, I couldn't do it with a clear conscience and feel like cool with that. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel the like so is getting any more diverse at all? No, it's, if, if anything, it's just getting worse. Um, We're in Trump country. Big time. Like adjacent to our, like, I could point the, the camera out the window. Uh, our neighbors have flags flying from their house kind of thing. We had a really nice sign off, um, you know, during the election where sign battle. a sign battle where we put as many progressive signs facing their property as we could. But I, when I woke up and went outside one day to like check the mail, or go to the car or whatever, and they're up on the roof hammering a Trump flag, it like actually gave me genuine fear. And also it's, I do not think that Christmas decorations after Christmas, I think that's pretty tacky, but I also feel the same way about political signs after the election <laughs> and they still have, now they have Christmas decorations and Trump flags. And so that is so passe, I don't even know. I can't touch it. I, I mean, it's okay. just weird because it's like the flag of white nationalism at this point. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's, there's no getting around what the fuck it represents. And just despite the fact that our, our neighbors are senior as fuck and harmless, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, but it's, it's <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, like more, morally, jury, they're, they're, you know, like they're you not know. harmless in the, their civic yeah. abilities. Yeah, that's no, exactly no, right. Exactly. And just it's it's super, super difficult to find any kind of space to have these conversations with those people um, as civilians. However, it's interesting sort of the, the, the conversations that you're able to have as a sex worker um again i'm just kind of getting into it in this way but i'm i'm fascinated by by the you know the willingness that people are i don't know the, the openness that people are willing to show when there's this curtain when there's this part that you're playing versus when you're just kind of out in the open and they think they know everything. My biggest tippers, I'm 100% sure voted for Trump, but I've decided I'm okay ethically taking their money. Because I mean, if you go to me, you could go to shitty campaigns. One of my primary sugar daddies definitely voted for Trump. Like, I feel it in my bones. We had a terse conversation it is it about is. it. It was I not just... comfortable. <laughs> you voted for me to not live in this country or have rights. That's cool. Hey, oh. Thanks, guy. <laughs> um, so, so you both do OnlyFans, but you were saying earlier that you do Grinder as well. Do you hear that? Again, just as a, a way to 
find work. This was way more, way more so during the pandemic. How um, is it? How is um? How does that work for you? Like, do you kind of funnel people to like OF? Like exactly. It's all just a marketing funnel. Um, just so they can find their way to some kind of paid platform or paid time. Well, and the trick is that, like, I mean, I know we've all experienced this. Is that sex workers' voices are being silenced on as many platforms as possible? And mm -hmm. so, like, we both have banned Twitters. I have three banned Twitters. So, like. This is this segues us into the next conversation that is rural sex work, which is if you like, I can't go work at a club. I can't go because that shit doesn't exist. And so the hustle and the grind looks way different than it looks like in places where there's, you know, various different forms of sex work and like even sex work community, like there is no sex work community here. And if there is, I sure shit don't know where it is and people aren't talking about it. And so the internet is a beautiful beast because you can advertise yourself everywhere, but you also can't at the same time. And so like we use a lot and it like, it feels shifty because like, I go on Tinder, which is now locked. I no longer can access Tinder anymore. I'm on. And I don't put any links. Like I put a regular ass picture of myself looking fine as hell on there. And I don't put any links in there and they always know, which means there's some fucking snitch. Someone's snitching. Someone's me talking to me on another platform and they're like, oh, she's not really here for, you know, she doesn't want to do a hookup. She just does OnlyFans. I'm going to report her. Can't have both, you know, because like the reality is like as much as people are willing to sell it, people are willing to buy it. Yeah. Well, it's like all those conversations about like the nurse and the paramedic that got fired from their jobs because they started an OnlyFans. But the conversation really should be, why the fuck are we paying these people a living wage? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, why do they need two jobs? Right. Like, yeah. and they are saving lives. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and like, you're also not worried about that, you know, Joe was the one that bought the OnlyFans to find out and then outed that person. Like, Joe should be in trouble, not the person that's doing this. Like, mm -hmm. this is a person participating, not the person consenting. And so, yeah, it just it is so infuriating. So we operate pretty much exclusively online for two reasons, because it's accessible during a global pandemic and because there is no way for us to market otherwise. Oh, so how do you separate sort of your private intimacy from your, or do you separate your private intimacy uh, from your private? That is yeah. ongoing, that's, that is an ongoing conversation. Um, we definitely do have private intimacy. Um, I think we're finding that the, the performative aspects and the public intimacy and the stuff that we're putting out there is... It, like it's helping us and our communication with the private stuff. Um, we don't like to put it all out there, but you know, obviously it, it's, you know, viewers push and they want more and they want you to get, you know, more hardcore and they want this and that. And, and there's a lot of projection happening, but ultimately we, we try to keep it authentic. We want the stuff that we're doing to be like, meaningful and not just this, 
it's like you want to have right. fun too even though you're doing work yeah yeah well and there's a lot of ways to attack it you know we, we do want to be like educating through the work that we're doing but we also do want it just to be playful and silly and, and what have you um and then with a platform online, you're able to do that and kind of control it. And, and Well, we can be, I mean, being, doing OnlyFans is like, you can be a personal sex worker from anywhere in the world in the privacy of your own home, but you're also independent. And so like, you're not held to any standard. You can do your own thing, whatever that looks like, whatever your kink is, whatever, like you can play to that strength and like, so that's kind of the beautiful part of all of like working with OnlyFans is that people can request it and then you're like, okay, well, you have to pay me for it. And they, if they want it, they're going to do it. And, um, and some people, the best part is like when the, you start to curate followers who flow with whatever you're into in your personal life. Like if you're like, I full disclosure, like I'm super into food play I sat in a pie on camera and I will not lie. I orgasmed no idea that was going to happen, <laughs> but like someone wanted that. And now I have someone that's like every month buys me food to sit in. I love this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm like, yes, what this is what I want. I love whenever like work just brings in a surprise kink. You're like, Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> I feel like we found a lot of those and also being like quarantined. Like I think in March when all the shit hit the fan, it was like, everyone was at each other's throats. Plus we have two little kids and we live in like the, the climate is in March awful in New Hampshire. Like Think about ice and warm at the same time. That's that's it. And mud. And so we're all trapped indoors at each other's throats. And then you're like, well, since we're here, let's dig into this thing with ropes. And then all of a sudden you're like, sweet, I'm into this. <laughs> What's it like um, for you, Atlas, like being, you know, one of a handful of like Asian male men, like making dope porn and also like being a hottie you know like there's not that many like yeah it's rare. <laughs> uh, it, it, it rare yeah i think a huge motivation for me is and i'm this is all kind of i'm, I'm realizing these things as i'm articulating them stream, to of consciousness. stream of consciousness um i'm doing this kind of motivated from a place of, of underrepresentation. um all of the you know, archetypes that I had, all of, of the, the stars that I wanted to be like were fucking, you know, baby arm swinging white cis white dudes. And first of all, no. And just it, it led to all of this like body dysmorphia and genital insecurity and all this other stuff that like I've, I've had to work and continue to work through. Um, so it, it's a big take back for me because a lot of, you know, like the partners that I've kept before star, for example, would say, you know, I'm so shocked you're above average. Oh my goodness. And it just, it was a very weird thing to hear. Backhanded compliment. Yeah. It's like a backhanded compliment. Not like, Oh, I'm, I'm so like, like I'm pleased. Yeah, yeah yeah like, <laughs> like oh you have a nice dick it's like right. let me <laughs> so 
Straight up. She's like, let me bring, I think I have a measuring tape in my purse. Let me just. I think a little racist. Can I compliment you? Yeah, I love every sexual interaction to have like just an undertone of um, racism. I think that's important for me. It's really nice. Make sure that that's present. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) No, but I think you know the big a big motivation now with 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 making content and putting stuff out there is to sort of celebrate myself ethnically as well, and not just sexually. Um, And that's to be explored because there's a lot of people out there that want to celebrate that, and I just want to try and find those people and connect with those people in a real way. But it's taking shape, and it takes time. And Star, you, um, I think in your conversation with Selena, talked about how you've been pigeonholed into this MILF title. Um, How do you feel about that? And And what is a MILF? (laughs) 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 Well, that is a question. What what is a MILF? And I think, um, you know, I love the concept of, like, being a mom, I want to fuck. But, like, reality is, like, I roll up to pick up in, like, jammy pants. And so, like, am I really a MILF? I don't know. Yeah, but you got your vibrator in the center console. I do have a vibrator in the center console. It's a long commute, okay? (laughs) So, like, I feel I've been pigeonholed as this idea of the MILF. And it can be kind of exciting at first thinking, like, oh, this is a fantasy that people want me to play. And that, like, is a real part of who I am. It's not just, like... It's not, yeah, it's not a fantasy. I really am a mom. And so I'm like, okay, this is something I can play off of. Um, But then you kind of feel when you try to be an ethical sex worker, you think like, am I playing a part into toxic motherhood? You know, by projecting this idea, like, you know, what we see in porn of like the stepmom that's stuck in the dryer with, you know, her amazing fake tits and her lip fillers. And then we expect, you know, people to grow up in the world using porn as their sex education that like when they're thinking I have mommy problems and MILF seems like something I really want to connect with. um, They look for that. And then I get dudes that are like, Oh, you're so hot. You're such a MILF. Send me a nude. And they pay for their nude. And then they're like, oh my God, ew, you're disgusting. And I'm like, what the fuck? Because like, I am a real mom. Like I have not perfect tits and I have a not perfect stomach. And so I don't really fit the fantasy of what they want as a MILF. And then my brain unravels into anxiety of like, wow, not only is this playing negatively to, you know, let's say men or people that are searching out like MILF porn for their fantasy. Um, But also to moms, like to real hot fucking kinky moms who are like making us feel more self-conscious all over again, that like we're not worthy enough for hot sex, that we are not sexy enough because we have squishy tummies and deflated tits and, um, then I feel responsible for like showing what like raw mother looks like. And that raw mother is like, yeah, throwing fruit snacks at kids while you're, you know, shooting a fucking vid. And so, um, I think like finding, I mean, what our, um, perception of a MILF is in porn because most people don't think of porn as a fantasy and as an, as a, as acting because it is it is acting um and reality and finding like where can we elevate the real milfs to still be a fantasy um 
And so like, I do feel partially responsible for like, I can be hot and also have a hot, like a soft tummy. And I think that is sexy. And I think the like bringing realness to porn and real reality to sex work is incredibly important. And I think like that is a big premise for why we do the things we do the way we do them. Um, interesting because, like, you know, like the whole MILF genre is like, I mean, for, for I think for a lot of stars, I, specifically like, um, mm, Face Nina, Nina, um, Lisa Ann, Lisa Ann, and stuff like um, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. way to like stay in the industry after you pass the barely legal mark. Like, yeah. once you're out of that barely legal sexy zone, then you can have a career beyond being a little bit older and making MILF porn, um, right? Even if you're not a mom. And it's, yeah, it's to it seems to be so divorced from the idea of like actually giving birth. Right. <laughs> like there's nothing mother or motherly about birth in porn. It's just, you know, uh, you it's are a, a, title. a woman who is like 25 to like 40, 40 yeah. ish. And uh, you look hot and you have sex with probably a younger guy who's probably your stepson or whatever right quote unquote your stepson mm -hmm. so my the bridge kind of like between my sex work unethical sex work and my ethical sex work is interesting interestingly enough birth work so after i had our first you know our first baby i got super into birth work um and i ended up going back to school and getting a certificate as a doula postpartum and birth doula and it's like this in interesting intersection because like now as a sex worker when i'm consuming porn my brain is like wow i'm pretty sure it looks like she's had an episiotomy and i'm like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> stop critiquing this and being like oh wow i see you know that's just like my brain goes it's really kind of beautiful in a way though like to be able to identify those like little hints of like you know a person's history like you've had babies like you right. are a mother like that's really cool not everybody has that skill yeah and when so like i think it's this interesting like to we, how did we get into this mess of like parenthood to begin with was sex. And so like, we're gonna, you know, end it with sex. And like, even thinking about like, God forbid, our mothers being sexual creatures, like our mothers having sex toys, our mothers, like, it's like, seems so icky, but it's like, how the hell did we all get here? Like, <laughs> things had to get freaky for us to arrive on this plane of existence. So, um, and also, like, part of being the mother is feeling partially responsible for raising two people who think, you know, who don't turn to porn for sexual education. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't even know, like, we, we talked about this of, like, we have a trunk at the foot of our bed that desperately needs a lock that's just, like, filled with all kinds of shit. And... We're sitting downstairs and my older son is like, why? Um, so I was in your room. And as soon as he said, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> He's like, why is it that you have a giant penis that you wear? <laughs> and it was like so neutral. He wasn't like, this was gross. This was weird. Like, it was funny. But he was like, why? And I was like, I am not in a place right now to talk about this with you. 
So I'm just going to like give you some kind of passive answer. And he was cool with it. And then his no, brother. You have to tell your answer. You got to say this answer. Okay. So sure. my day job <laughs> is I'm a seamstress. <laughs> and so I have like all these fucking mannequins all over the house because I'm working from home. And so I was like, oh, well, I put, <laughs> I put the penis on the mannequin when I make pants for men. And he... <laughs> I just love to imagine, like, pants that are made for a boner. <laughs> like, I specially tailor it. Wait, gentlemen, please, I need you to get hard. We can't take these measurements without it. <laughs> oh, and this is, like, this is a dildo I bought by accident. When it says 10 inches, I was like, I can accept 10 inches. And then you get a 10-inch dildo, and you're like, I underestimated. I sew professionally. I literally measure things professionally. How did I underestimate? I know, and it's also like you're 4'8". Like, just imagining <laughs> where 10 inches. Where the whole body out of your body? Where? <laughs> I was insulted. <laughs> there was a moment of sex toy insecurity when I pulled it out, and his face was like a little shit. <laughs> <laughs> it is, not only is it 10 and 10 inches long but it is way girthier this is why don't buy like sex toys online kid. like not, <laughs> it's unreal and check them out yeah. <laughs> right yeah. right but we can't and also where but like we should just open like a whole strip like like a, like a tribe before you a buy plaza sex of like all kinds of set like we um, need sexual education we need a strip club we need sex toys we need just like to buy a whole block see and if you did you would make bank like the people who are the most oppressed are the most freaky deaky uh <laughs> freaks the well, freakiest of freaks yes so yeah so that's but you were saying that you did you have a, another conversation with him afterward with them afterwards um we didn't but it actually has like in the past couple of days spurted conversations about like where do babies come from and we are like really not we don't like we call it our penis and our vagina we don't use pet names you know actually and this is like kind of a psa for all parents that might be listening or people that might want to have children in the future a friend told me that if you use the anatomical names for your child's genitals when they are babies and you just always call them one thing that if they ever come home from a play date or a sleepover and they call their genitals something unusual it should be a red flag that someone else besides you is talking with your child about their genitals and i was like oh my god that is a brilliant way of protecting your child from sexual abuse um, and even if it's not sexual abuse, even if it's just, oh, my friend was telling me about X, Y, Z about sex or something their parents do or whatever, like, then it can be a conversation of education with your child. But I was just like, so yes, call, call your genitals what they are so that your children aren't confused. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even the, the sex talk, like, yeah, our older son was like, hey, where do babies come from? And Atlas is just laying here and he just goes, sex. <laughs> and a younger son's like so how and i'm like well you know dad has a sperm mom has an egg and you know he uses his penis and he puts in the and he's like that sounds weird i'm like it is 
And they're like, cool with that. And I know like in five months, I'm going to get like a doozy of a question that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. But like, it does open the door for like positive sexual conversations without it being uncomfortable. And one day, you know, our older son is going to be like reflecting on his child and be like, wow, one time I found a huge strap on in my mom's room. (laughs) It's not not about comprehension at this age. It's about like just introduction and, and just kind of being real with them. You know, they are at such a naive age that their, their takeaway is pretty basic. Well, um, why do parents, like, give kids, like, this cushy sex talk of, like, well, mommies and daddies have special cuddles. Like, kids are not, like, biologically programmed to want – I mean, like, I think there is some curiosity. But for the most part, they're going to be like, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. No, just normalize it. It, it doesn't have to be – like, by, you're not planting a seed in their head that they're going to be having sex by talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like kids who are, like, already, like, sexual at an early age are just kind of already there. And then, like, kids who are not are, like, not going to be, like, encouraged to go in any direction, you know? Like, if they hear anatomical specific information, like, right. at point, it just sounds like crazy logistics, like, how, what... I have a limp penis, so I don't know what to do, how to push in. <laughs> Our younger son was, like, laying on the carpet, playing with trucks, and I just, like, am sitting on the on his bed, like, sewing or something, and he goes, oh, and I'm like, uh, you just, like, know when your kids say weird shit and the way they say it, that something's about to go down, and he's like, my penis feels weird, and I was like, okay, can you give me some more information? like do you want me to look at it is it like painful like he goes it feels like it feels like seltzer and I was like that's a and so he stood up and he was like wearing pajama pants and I was like oh you have an erection and then I was like wow I don't have a penis does it feel like seltzer like like does it feel full it was such an interesting way of talking about it kind of also, Atlas, does your penis feel like seltzer? Atlas, yeah. we need an expert here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that, is, that, is medic, that is the medical term. So did you feel like seltzer today? Good, then that's a healthy day. If you hold hands with someone and your elbows are bent at a 90 degree angle and you can't see your hands and the way you're holding hands is like the bottom of your hand on top of their hand with the fingers interwoven, not where palms are facing each other but palm on back of hand, then you very slightly move your thumb where it's suspended in space, small movements around where you're hardly moving any muscles, it will probably make you wonder if you're even moving your thumb. This is what got me thinking. If I were in space rotating 360 degrees every three hours where my head is at the center of the circle and my feet were the circumference and there were no stars or planets to orient myself with, would I notice I was rotating? The issue with this is that I would not be able to perform this action without there being a force to drive me. Introducing Dr. Woodward's little doohickey, you hold this while you're in space and you're guaranteed to rotate 360 degrees every three hours this way everyone can experience the way that it will feel as though you're not moving at all a good way to prank yourself call tesla today so i'm really grateful that you guys came on here um can you give us um your information where we can we find you yeah how can we support you where can we find you uh oh hell yeah you want to plug uh i am on instagram at miso 
underscore naughty m-i-s-o underscore n-a-u-g-h-t-y i am on only fans as i underscore atlas um everything else i've been banned on so <laughs> those are the platforms that i exist on currently um yeah i start love going. those names <laughs> um <laughs> yeah you can find me on instagram i am at mon little star like the little star but that was already taken and on OnlyFans, onlyfans.com slash the little star and um yeah we're yeah that's where you can find us yeah i've been banned on everything else like maybe you can swipe me on you know bumble or something maybe (laughs) you're in the new hampshire area (laughs) we're in the new hampshire area but you know what i put my radius as far out as it'll let me That's what you got to do. Everywhere. <laughs> Good catchment area. Um, you can find me at the goddess Corey on Instagram, on Twitter. I don't have a link tree. I have a milkshake now. Uh, you can click the links. Ooh. Wonderful. Milkshakes uh, bring all the boys to, to the, the yard, yard is what I've heard. <laughs> hey. Um, so I am Selena the Stripper. You can find me on Instagram at Pretty Boy Girl. You can follow our podcast at Ho in the No, spelled Hukes in the Nukes. Um, you can, I feel like there's other stuff that I need to plug. Um, TikTok, Selena oh. the Strumpet. Uh, Patreon, at The Real Pretty Boy Girl. Um, support my org at Soldiers underscore of underscore full underscore. Um, yeah, and, uh, Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this lovely episode. Um, And thank you, too, for joining us and being such amazing guests. Thank you. All right, everybody. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. More money. I want your money. I want more money. 